I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, I read for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. Welcome to the 45th episode of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Well, as the, uh, the pros in the hosting business say, we've got a great show for you today, folks. Uh, writers, <laughs> as we know, provide the literary helium that lifts all uh, theatrical endeavors. And one of those splendid suppliers is with us. Okay, I apologize for this arch metaphor, especially because our guest, uh, the playwright and MacArthur fellow, Samuel D. Hunter, is so much more depth uh, with language. And he's here to talk about his ongoing commitment to the stage, as evidenced by his latest play, Greater Clements, starring Judith Ivey, which is now running in Lincoln Center Theater's Mitzi Newhouse space. And uh, this is our final podcast of 2019. I, I can't think of a better way to wrap up this year. It's Sam Hunter is one of my favorite playwrights. Isn't that great? Currently in activity. So yeah. I am so happy that he's here with us. And uh, after we've... Uh, we're done grilling him. Please uh, stick around a little bit because we're going to talk, as usual, about shows that we uh, liked or maybe uh, did not like <laughs> uh, to, to, uh, to finish the podcast. But first, uh, we're going to welcome Sam Hunter. And Peter, you can you tell us a little bit about uh, Greta Clements? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, set the stage a little bit here. I, I first uh, encountered Sam's work at Woolly Mammoth Theater in 2011 in a play uh, for which he's well known, a play called A Bright New Boise, which in my review I described as an unsparing account of the hunger pangs in the barren American gut, which I think goes to something that Sam does. And he'll talk to us, I think, about uh, you know how he, how he gets to the gut mm -hmm. uh, of issues. That, that play, as with many of Sam's plays, uh, was set in his native Idaho, that one in a big box store. And and as with many of his plays, it, it elucidated a, a certain, I would say, deficit in the American soul, uh, an emotional hole that his characters eternally struggle to fill. Uh, Greater Clements, which is now at the Mitzi Newhouse Theater, uh, Lincoln Center Theater's production, that's their off-Broadway house, is another of these searching uh, character-rich dramas. A tragedy, in fact. This one about the fading of blue-collar life in an Idaho mining town. Um, in it, an older woman, played wonderfully by Judith Ivey, uh, the aforementioned Judith Ivey, is as wrung out in her way as Clements itself. Um, she's got a mentally ill adult son whose needs uh, freeze her in place, even as her own emotional quest for happiness uh, hits a dead end. It's ultimately a story of about American class warfare, uh, a place where the locals are so fed up with the wave of California Aravists who come to buy up all the prime real estate that they vote to disband the, the municipality. And, and one of the great things about uh, uh, Sam Hunter's play is that well, they're all set in Idaho. I mean, he has lived in New York for uh, many, many years now, but he continues to set his plays in Idaho. Uh, my personal, uh, I think the first one by him that I saw was, I think it was Pocatello, um, mm. which was set in an Italian-themed uh, chain restaurant. restaurant. Yeah, yeah right. kind of grim place. Or actually, it was either that or The Whale. The Whale is about this 500-pound recluse who was memorably played by Shula Hensley Brilliant. in an unbelievable fat, fat suit. suit. 
<laughs> that it was just absolutely striking. And but I would say my favorite so far of the one that I've seen is the Harvest, which is a group of young, which is about a, a group of young evangelicals who are about to leave uh, Southern Idaho to work their magic <laughs> uh, over there, as they keep calling it, over there, which is some uh, unspecified Middle East, Middle Eastern country. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it starts yeah. with this unbelievable, very long scene in which they speak in tongues. It's, it's a really striking play. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan uh, of Sam Hunter. Welcome to Three on the Isle, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I guess, uh, could you... Tell us and, and, and the listeners, uh, how, how would you describe uh, Greater Clements? What, what is it about? Uh, Greater Clements is uh, it's a three-act tragedy, and uh, it follows this woman who lives in a fictional town of Clements, Idaho, who uh, uh, and this town has recently voted to unincorporate itself. And as a result, her old mining museum and her, her family business is having to shut down. And the sort of story of the play kicks in when somebody she hasn't seen in about 50 years uh, shows up at her doorstep, sort of offering her an alternative means of escape. Uh, so that's that's a kind of I guess that's a jumping off point of the play. And there's an overlay when you talk about the the reason that you know there's a reason that the town has is decided to disband. That's right. Yeah. And it has to do with I think with what would you say class resentments uh, or and the yeah. changing yeah. face of that of of uh, America and how you know um, a a a a Aravist class arrives and and decides it wants to buy up all the land. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's I think there's, you know, there's a political allegory, if you will, going on in the play, which is something that I, I don't really normally do. Uh, but I wrote this play very shortly after uh, the election. Hmm. And I think it it's very much sort of keyed into this sort of national anxiety that's that's going on right now and not not really just here but i mean you know brexit bolsonaro i mean it's it's something that kind of like uh the way i describe it is it's sort of like right now it, it feels like normally before 2016 it kind of felt like you know the politics was kind of this deck of cards that we all knew and it, you know the, the order would be shuffled around every so often but we kind of all knew it but but in 2016 both here and abroad i think those cards have been kind of thrown up in the air and they're all still in suspension kind of above us and we're all kind of gripping our chairs waiting to see where exactly they're going to fall. And so the play, I think, is really keyed into that kind of anxiety and mm. um, dread, I guess, is is the right word, yeah. which is why I, I kind of baldly describe the play as a three-act tragedy. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big show, too. It's a big production. Yes. It's a, it's comes up nearly three hours, which is kind of countercultural these days. Yeah. Uh, what, what what made you think in terms of the larger scale? Well, I, you know, it wasn't really like I, oh, I wrote a really long play, so I guess I need two intermissions. It was really like I sat down thinking like at, at a certain point I was like, no, I'm going to write a three-act play that that is sort of about nostalgia. And it's both its value, but also its inherent toxicity. And in that, I kind of wanted to uh, create this structure that in it itself is kind of a nostalgic kind of structure. Uh, you know, these three act plays that, you know, you think of from the 30s and the 40s. Mm. Uh, yeah. and so I really wanted to, to grab that structure really deliberately and employ that. Uh, and, it, and it really kind of up until I think the third act when the structure kind of splits open a little bit and becomes something a little different, uh, it, it kind of follows that pattern of, you know, the, the end of the first act kind of sails us 
forward with this kind of dramatic question, and then there's a big bang at the the end of the second mm-hmm. act, and um, and then I think there's you know there's a normal version of the third act, and I, I you know which I could have written, but I, I really deliberately wanted to subvert it. There's what no do you mean a normal? Can I just say? That? Oh what yeah, do you, yeah. What do you mean by a normal version of the third well, act? Well, I mean I you know I could I, I could even walk you through a version of what that third act would be. I mean they would probably spoil the play, but but uh, but I think like a few key things happen in the play where suddenly in the third act where suddenly the the it's almost like the concentric circles of the drama start to expand Mm -hmm. and what i really wanted to do in the last 20 seconds or so of the play is suddenly the play kind of blasts out of this little house in idaho and lands right on 65th street uh and kind of pulls us all in uh, in, in a way that kind of makes us complicit. 65th Street, you're referring to Lincoln Center? I am, yeah. Right? <laughs> no, not just specifically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> quite a striking phrase you just used, Sam, the toxicity of nostalgia. Yes. Could you talk a bit more about that? Well, uh, I mean, I think that we're living in this moment where uh, a large part of this country is calling back to this era that kind of only exists in their minds. Uh, and, uh, but, but I think that, you know, the play isn't just saying that, you know, these values from, and our, I know what, what life was like 50 years ago was nothing but toxic because there was like a lot of value in that. And I think the play, you know, the, the, the dramatic engine of the play is like, can we start up this relationship that was left dormant 50 years ago? And can we live in that again? And it's a beautiful thing, I think for these characters, but, um, but I think when we try to just desperately relive these things, we kind of we don't honor what what the past actually was. Well, you also link to that with the character of the woman who comes at the end. Yes. Who because she, I don't think I mean I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say it's she's part of that moneyed class mm-hmm. who comes in and buy land in that town. But the reason is she used to come there as a kid. That's right. And she has this kind of golden hazed yeah, memory yeah. of. The summers there and being happy and and but you're 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 kind of gentle with her. You're not portraying her as this destructive. Oh no, yeah. Carpet bag. I mean, she has a good reason to want to go back there. It's, oh yeah, and she's genuinely doing. I think all right. and I think that's maybe what's make makes this play a tragedy is all seven characters in this play are desperately trying to help one another. Um, but the tragedy is that the math just doesn't add up correctly. They kind of miss each other by millimeters. Um, mm. And there's also uh, an important overlay, I think, is that the the suitor who comes back uh, is from a family that was interred during World War II, a Japanese-American family, which is an unusual aspect of the play in the sense that we don't get to see Asian characters mm-hmm. uh, performing this kind of function in a play in America That as, as much as it was very rewarding for me to see that. But also I felt that does play into your the idea you're describing here about the past yeah. and how we tend to forget the past. And we don't we don't share this the, when when those things are erased, um, we all lose our own bearings, our own roots get yeah. sort of distorted. And it's like the son in the story, another important character, uh, Judith Ivey's son, uh, uh, who's a grown-up mentally ill young man. Um, who doesn't remit, who doesn't even believe that this happened in That's this right. country that yeah. there was internment of Japanese citizens, mm-hmm. Japanese American citizens. So there's an interesting these what you're talking about threads all through this yeah. three hour play. Yeah, I mean, there's that key moment in Act Two where um, Judy's character and uh, Ken's character are talking, and he kind of for the first time gets into this story of 
what it was like to be a Japanese person in a very white town in Idaho in the 50s. And uh, I guess it would be the 60s. Um, and, you know, Maggie hears him and then kind of immediately is sort of like, well, but it was still a good place to go, grow up, right? I mean, there's there's that right. kind of like revisionist, you know. It, it, are these, you, your plays are very often set in Idaho and maybe even, I, I mean, all, all the plays right? I've seen of yours have been set in Idaho. I mean, technically Clarkston is in Washington. Oh, right. Right, across right, the river, right, over the right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, that, yeah. it's that sort of chunk of the world. Are these characters, you know, person, are these people that since you're, they're all sort of located in the place you grew up, one assumes there's an authenticity that comes from some personal experience with some of these people, or are these are they just representative for you of 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 strains in the in the society that you strands of the society that you sort of recognize as being part of yourself? I think it's maybe the the latter. Um, I've I've never had the experience of meeting somebody either or remembering somebody from my childhood and being like, okay, I'm putting that person in a play, um, even though there are kind of like bits and pieces like the mother character who is entirely unlike my mother in real life but my mother grew up in a town in southern idaho that had a sizable japanese population her dad was a world war ii vet and so you know obviously i use that as as a jumping off point but no i i mean and again like bits and pieces i knew somebody um when i was in high school who had a schizophrenic break and so i thought about him a little bit when rendering joe um, but no, I mean, if anything, like there's usually in a character in a play that's sort of a funhouse mirror version of myself. Um, mm. and that's, and in this play, it's definitely Joe. Um, but, but yeah, I, I mean, I think I usually, the way that I arrive at the characters is usually just through world building, mm. you know? Mm. Do you, do you know Horton Foote's work? Has it shaped you at all? Because I think of you in connection with him, although the flavor is obviously very, very different. I, to be honest, I, I, I mean, I did in college and a little bit, and I, I really like his plays, but no, he wasn't, even though I totally see the connection, he wasn't a huge influence for me personally. Who has been, or, or do you feel that there are any strong influences? You know, weirdly enough, it's all over the map. I mean, I kind of feel like when I arrived at, in New York City when I was seven, or I guess I had just turned 18, to go to college, I knew almost nothing. I mean, other than I wanted to be a playwright, but but I had never heard of Edward Albee. I hmm. maybe had read one or two plays. I mean, I just said, I had no reason to. The plays that I knew growing up were like Arsenic and Old Lace and <laughs> Much Do About yeah. Nothing. Sure. Uh, but two plays uh, I love, by the way. Uh, of course. And... Uh, and when I started writing plays, it just kind of felt like, oh, and well, I mean, it was really like an R town. I mean, that was a huge play for me mm. when I was in high school. Yeah. Um, but when I started writing plays, it, I, I didn't know a lot. I did know Angels in America because I saw a production of part one at um, the University of Idaho, and that was hugely influential. But so I was a bit of a blank slate when I arrived uh, in New York. And I remember reading Zoo Story and being blown away and then like writing a bad you know, knockoff of Zoo Story. Uh, and then, you know, reading Virginia Woolf and writing a bad knockoff of that. And and uh, then then I got really interested in the avant-garde, actually, uh, the deeper I got into college. And I became obsessed with Richard Foreman. Oh, for wow. Okay, years that later. really, Very I, didn't, interesting. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> no, I, me neither. I still love that kind of thing. I, I, to this day, it kind of surprises me that I'm essentially a realist. Um, mm. I, I, I never saw that coming to be honest. Um, and the first play I had was in the now defunct blueprint series, uh, in 2004, when I was a senior in college, I wrote a play called Abraham, a shot in the head. That was a <laughs> biblical 
uh, a remix of the biblical story of Abraham Seton in a field in Idaho. But it was very like, it was a knockoff of Richard Foreman. It was like people lumbering around and saying non sequiturs. And, um, but no, I love that kind of stuff. And it, and it really wasn't until graduate school that I started bending back toward realism. I think having gathered a lot from my explorations in the avant-garde. I'm thinking back, Sam, to uh, the first play of yours I saw, which was A Bright New Boise, hmm. which I loved. I saw it at Willie Mammoth in Washington. Yeah, yeah. It was a wonderful- With Michael Rosetta. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Yes, indeed. And, and, you know, at that time, I thought maybe, you know, you were um, a, a critic yourself, not in terms of- uh, you know, evaluating the, you know, the, the merit of, of, of particular productions, but in terms of the place you grew up, mm. uh, it, it, it was, uh, it's a very, um, uh, for an, for an Easterner, it's a, it's a, it, it's an interesting introduction to that world. Yeah. Uh, and the, the main character being this, uh, very dark, figure sort of this emptied out man who uh, uh is trying to restart his life yeah um and i and as i'm recalling he be, he had become very he becoming an evangelical uh sort of or a proselytizer yeah, he was from, kind of a lapsed evangelical having kind of there was kind of this bad incident in the church that he ended up north and so he had yeah with a young person yes yeah, 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 yeah. i'm person. remembering it very uh, very well i think um was uh did you start out thinking I'm gonna like ex you know was that a young person's sort of like view of your the place you grew up that I was that you're going to sort of like expose the 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 dark side of this of this of this um of this of this terrain? I don't know if it was. I mean, maybe there was part of. It's funny. I'm trying to think of myself writing that play <laughs> like ten years ago or so. But but I just I, I I've always just been interested in those people kind of living on the fringes of society. Mm -hmm. The reason I started writing Bright New Boise is I watched this documentary about, um, uh, what's his name? The Westboro Baptist Church guy. Oh, Frank, yeah. Frank Phelps. Right. Uh, and one of the most interesting shots in that whole documentary was there's this big pullback shot of his backyard when he was having a family barbecue and it looked so normal. And kids playing and things. And then they would like interview the kids and then this hate speech would just like fall out of their mouths. They were like five years old. Um, and so I was like, well, what, like, what is like, let me put somebody like that. I mean, he's, he, he wasn't that, um, but let me put somebody with these kind of extremist views in this dark past and let me put them in the most quotidian environment possible. Mm, and a, a big box store, a, big right? box store. a Hobby Lobby. Yeah. Hobby Lobby before. And this was before the whole, like, and now it seems very deliberate, but it, but really it was just, I thought it was a funny name. Right. So that's why that's I chose exactly. it. Exactly. It is. Know? It is kind um, of goofy. But, but yeah, so, and it's funny when I think of that guy, I, I feel a lot of love for him actually. Like, mm. I mean, he's got a darkness to him and I think, you know, one of the tragic things about that play is he can't let it go and, you know, you can't let that, that darkness go and it kind of takes him over by the end of the play. Mm. Um, but he's such a good guy. I mean, he's trying so hard that entire play. Mm. You know? mm, mm, mm. Well, it's interesting actually that you mentioned that the Hobby Lobby, uh, because uh, quite a few of your plays take place either in or deal with things that are very quotidian for a lot of Americans, but we don't see all that much in the theater. Yeah. There's like the kind of that Italian chain restaurant in yeah, Italo, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, in Lewiston Cloxton, okay, I can't remember which one of the two, uh, they're working in yeah, a Costco. kind of a Costco. Yeah. Uh, it's this very uh, kind of suburban, you know, the 
strips De- something that we see desolate all the time. about yeah the, uh, exactly even even the whale where he's you know he's like he's cooped up a 400 pound man or something in his apartment you know he's it's like a, a very i'm just surprised mundane... that this quotidian stuff that plays such a huge part in so many American Americans' life is relatively not done at the theater very much. Right. Is that something that you do consciously? It was like, oh, I don't see enough shows about that, or is it just more something that would come up naturally? You know what I mean? Is there's that probably like, it's probably both. I mean, I think there's probably mm-hmm. an element of like, oh, I've never seen that before. Like, what's interesting about that? But I think uh, kind of starting with Bright New Boise and then going forward, I, I just got really interested in like, how can I put how can I experience the divine in the most quotidian possible places? Mm. Uh, and that the distance between those two two things just seemed really fertile to me. I mean, it's one thing to write a play about a religious person and send a convent, but it's another to write about a religious person in the back of a big box store. Right. How has, you've lived in New York ever since college? I left for graduate school, but um, but other than that, yeah. So you've been here uh, uh, for a, almost for half your life, basically, or more. No? Yeah, that's crazy to realize. But yeah. <laughs> How has that changed your perspective of Idaho? I think I don't know if I would be writing about Idaho if I lived in Idaho. I think that distance is what allows me to both write about it, but also release myself from being some regional chronicler and mm. allowing myself mm-hmm. to sort of make this the Idaho of my imagination that's such a dumb phrase no no but me. i understand but, but, what you're saying you know, right. there, there's a real idaho that's been going on for the last 15 years and then there's this idaho that i've been building with my plays sort of that's you know parallel but not directly corresponding to wait, wait, why is it important to you because you said you were like the plays are part of your world building yeah and yet they're still set in idaho yeah. why, why is it important because for instance uh the whale could be anywhere yeah it takes place in this guy's you know house doesn't we we don't leave the house it could be it could be in arkansas or yeah, it could be true. or in new york it could be anywhere in a big box store that could be right exactly anywhere. there's costcos yeah. everywhere and uh so why is it important to you that they are still set in idaho when i first started doing it what it was was a way for me to be able to be really specific and have mm-hmm. and have sort of like a personal shorthand for that specificity that I could just imbue in every single play and I and I didn't have to like go and figure out what what is the term for that in Arkansas you know what I mean right, right, um, right. but the more that I kept doing it it was really probably around 2014 2015 somewhere around there where I was like oh this really isn't about any one play mm. this is about a body of work and I really want the plays to speak to one another uh, and feel like they dovetail off one another. Interesting. And feel like yeah. I, mean, I mean, again, this is a pretentious way to put it, but I, but I I I don't want to keep one upping myself with every play, hoping well, maybe this is the. I just want them to feel like the same chap chapters in the same book. Mm. Terry, do they do? Yeah. Do they do your stuff in Idaho? What do they think of it there? <laughs> they have. Yeah. They actually. Um, one of my first professional productions was at Boise Contemporary Theater. It was a play called Norway that was in like 2010. Um, and then I had a play there. I wrote a play for that theater called A Permanent Image that they premiered in 2011 or 12, I think. Kip Fagan went out to direct it and did a beautiful job. Um, and then they most recently did a, kind of a sister production of Lewis and Clarkston at Boise Contemporary Theater. And our associate director from the Rattlestick production went out there and directed it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think like they... It, it plays slightly different in Idaho. I mean, just, you know, in like very specific ways. Like there's a line in uh, Clarkston 
where he's like, you'll get used to the smell of the paper mill after a while. And that guy got a huge laugh in Idaho because yeah, everybody knows <laughs> yeah. what the Lewis and Clark Valley yeah, smells yeah. like. Yeah. Um, but fundamentally, I don't think they're much different. I think I think maybe they just like there's a bit more recognition. And, and you know, here in New York, um, I think it's just a little bit more, you know, people always... The words that I don't like that kind of sometimes people throw around when describing the characters is that they're like quirky or idiosyncratic, oh. uh, which always kind of gives me an allergic reaction. But um, <laughs> so there is kind of, you know, it, it's a little bit more exotic for people here in, in New York, um, which I'm kind of actively interested in. Uh, and maybe the distance is a little less when we do them out in Idaho. I don't know. I, I grew up in a small town and uh, Pocatello just sounded like home to me. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, southeast Missouri. Okay, yeah, yeah. So well, a then town you have about a the size of that restaurant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, and, you know, I mean, Missouri is very different than Idaho, but then you have you have a bit more context than than somebody who's kind of spent their entire lives on the Northeast Corridor. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. You describe yourself. You say you were surprised that you're a realist. You know, I think there's also interestingly the part of you, your work that reminds me of Shepard a little bit mm. is not so much that it's, you know, the locale as there is this kind of mythic quality to yeah. what you put on a stage. So it's not strictly real, but when you, so when you said, you know, it authenticates it essentially for you, that gives you a place that, that seems real to you. Uh, that makes sense to me because right. I think that is what's translated. There's a reality on that stage that may not necessarily be a place called Clements, Idaho. That's right. And it could be anywhere from North Carolina to Oregon, for God's sakes. I yeah. mean, as, as Terry's saying, you know, he's he recognizes that that small town feeling. So it's it it, it with it, it is. I think that is those labels don't really apply to you easily. Yeah, I I think it's, I think even a few moments ago I said I hedged it a little bit. And yeah. I said I'm essentially a realist. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because I don't really. I I mean, it's also not for me to decide like what kind of writer I am. But but yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like I'm writing strict naturalism. Yeah, uh, and it never has. So how long? You know, I, people are always curious about some of the uh, the, the the mechanics here of of playwriting. So when you were, uh, this is a big piece of theater, as we've discussed. Yeah. So it was Lewis and Clark's. And, I mean, there's, those are, law. I mean, that was two parts, two plays. You had to, I mean, about, what were they in length? About 90 minutes each? Or? Yeah, each about 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, what kind of gestation period is there for a play like Greater Clements? Is it something uh, that take you, do you write fast once you get the idea? Well, it's, it's depends, I guess, on what you mean when you talk about writing you know what i mean like <laughs> right I, my usual process and this isn't um the same for every play because every play is a little different but my usual process and it was with greater clements is that i think about the play for a really long time and that can be months to years and with greater clements it was years uh and i don't really write anything i might write notes uh but i don't i don't write dialogue i don't write really anything um and then once I feel like I know what the end of the play is, then I can release myself to write it. And uh, the first draft usually goes out really quickly because I feel like I'm just like chasing the idea. And 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 I also just want to write quickly because I want the scenes to feel human and not overworked, especially in that stage. But then the rewriting process and the development process is also very, very long. And go ahead. Oh, um, I was wondering how involved you get working once you have a director. Hmm. Like, is that what kind of collaboration do you enjoy with the director? I'm and, and talk about this particular director too, Davis. McCallum. Yeah, so Davis um, 
we, I, I, I the think director this of, is, of Davis McCallum, yeah, the director of Greater Clements, and I, th I think this is the eighth play we've done together. Wow. I, would, I, I'd actually have to sit down and count, but I believe it's been eight. Um, he and I have really, I mean, it's kind of a marriage at this point, and we really have kind of a shorthand. But as far as my involvements, I'm probably more annoying than most playwrights in that I am there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in, I'm in every audition, uh, all the callbacks, uh. Every rehearsal, most previews. Because? Like, I just feel like Davis and I at this point are building something together, you know, and our roles have become a little porous uh, mm -hmm. where like he can come to me and we'll be like, well, what if this scene did this? And and I can go to him and 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 be like, I really don't think this transition is working. You know what I mean? Um, so and I feel like if I, you know, like I had the experience of I, I went to Idaho for a few days during the rehearsal process and I came back. And I really had to catch up because like the room had moved forward and, mm. and we were thinking about scenes in certain ways. And, and I just kind of feel like for me to best serve the actors and the designers uh, and the production as a whole, I just I have to know where the play lives every day so I can help mm. write toward yeah. that. Mm. You know, mm. Mm. yeah, I'm the same way. Do you go to tech? I love tech. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a tech. I'm really <laughs> annoying during tech, too, because I, I for some reason I'm really opinionated about sound. And just hyper opinion. It's so dumb. I don't know why. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. But because you want people to hear the words. No, no. I'm in sound design. Oh, in sound effects. No, like oh, the, me, the, the, yeah, me too. Me the too. Music I am to my so... ears. I love that. It's one of the most underused, I yeah. think, resources in American theater. And like my That's... pet peeve is when I see a play and I just feel like the sound designer rated their iTunes library. And like, like I almost never like music in my plays. And mm -hmm. Davis and I have a running joke that I'm just like, if anything, music. Even though I love music and I'm a musician, like. When music, because I I find that sometimes it just is used like a movie score, um, and but I, I get way too. And there's a sound designer Fitz Patton who did this play and many of my other plays, who's an absolute genius. I'm so lucky that he works with me because I'm so irritating. I mean, I, I will go to him and be so. I mean, I'll be like, you know, Fitz, you know how this transition is doing? Like da da da. I think it should go da da da. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 almost pathological at this point. <laughs> yeah, that, that you're, there's a there's a medication on the table for uh, for everyone yes. to, to partake of in case you get. But um, I was also curious, Sam. Uh, you know, having seen uh, this play and thought a lot about people, as Elizabeth said, that I don't see on the stage all that often, mm. uh, expressing themselves about ideas that maybe I don't and values I don't know that I always share or understand their perspective on and then i see a play like heroes of the fourth turning yeah. which also opens my eyes in a different way but uh, but uh, but also to, to people who uh, you know of a more conservative background i don't think that's necessarily true as you said politically you really aren't necessarily focusing on that all the mm -hmm. time with your characters but certainly there are political elements to your story and the perspective of local people being sort of pushed out or being dictated to by californians who think you know that their money speaks yeah. in clements um, my question, I guess, is: Are we? Do you feel like we don't see enough or hear enough from this? These kind of voices in the theater. Uh, do you find that we're so tilted the other direction that we don't get to listen to a big part of the country that might want to be heard? Yeah, I. It's tough because I never, I personally never go to theater 
I never approach theater like I approach an op-ed section of the newspaper. Like, I never go in being like, okay, I want to know what right. the playwright thinks about these sociopolitical issues so I can agree with them. Like that, and, and, I'm, right. and that kind of theater, I mean, there's, there's a place for that kind of theater, but, but I, it's just not the kind of theater that I want to create. And so, I, so it, you know, it's less of like maybe some mission statement that I have for myself of like, no, we need to know who these people are and more about like, well... I've never seen a play with these people in it and um, and they have integrity and they're not uh, caricatures. Uh, and I think that's worth writing about, especially now. Um, but it's getting, you know, it's weird. It's, it's the last few years has been, you know, people, especially here in New York, their relationship to my writing is getting more and more, um, I guess I want to say the word polarized. Um, it's fascinating. You know, it's like people, uh, I mean, it's, it's funny. I've sat in a lot of audiences, uh, in a lot of performances in my plays and, and, um, you know, we were doing my play, The Harvest during the election. I was going to election. go to that. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, you know, he was elected in the middle of our run and all of a sudden we kind of had a different play. Mm. Um, and audiences started relating to it really differently. Uh, can you explain, like, what was it like before and after? Like, what was the... the... It was kind of a temperature shift in the room oh, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, because that play had a very aggressive opening. It, it opened oh. with, you know, eight minutes of scripted tongues. Right, uh, right. Glossolalia. And, um, and that's a really hard plunge into that basement in southeastern Idaho, you know, of, of just like, this, I'm going to show you the most extreme element of of this community uh, without even knowing the people's names yet before they've said any words in mm. English, I'm going to plunge you into this. Mm. And, and I think maybe, you know, before when I was first writing the play and doing, uh, you know, workshops of the play, like it was more sort of like, Oh, this is interesting. Who are these people? I've never seen them. And then after it became sort of like, Oh wait, those mm. people, you mm. know, these people who, um, I have a much more adversarial outlook on. You know. Well, do you worry? That's it's troublesome that people don't want to hear what they don't want to hear. Yeah, you know, there this this seems to be a growing problem. I'm not sure social media is helping us understand that, no, you know, or you right. actually. And, and it's an anti-artistic point of view too. And what really strikes one of the things that strikes me about your work is that you really do seem to suspend judgment about people. Mm -hmm. You just want to show them to us. Yeah, we're getting a lot less of that. I fear in theater. Yeah, I guess, yeah, because maybe I just got to feel like, who am I to say, it's not who am I to, look, I have a lot of opinions and they are my own, but sure. but I think that that the theater is not a place for me to hold captive a bunch of people in the dark and tell them what to think about a certain thing. I think theater is a space with a multiplicity of perspectives, and that's what I find interesting about writing for theater, right? whereas, you know, we're writing for a newspaper or... or um, you know, writing, even writing a novel. Well, you know, actually, I thought it's funny because there's always some plays that come along and are described as provocative and edgy. And, and I actually, but they're that way in such a kind of predictable, their, their provocation mm. is very, is a little obvious. But I remember very distinctly the, the Harvest. I love The Harvest. I think it's it's really one of my favorite plays of the past several years. And... And that, because you take these people at face value, you are what they believe in. You're not making fun of their beliefs. Mm. They believe what they believe. And then their behavior, their attitudes, I mean, it's it's a lot more complicated yeah. than, and I think showing those people with that judgment in New York, that's real provocation. Um, and yes. it feels very, very 
uh, it really messes the audiences. I have friends who have very negative reactions to that play. I love I'm that sure. play. Yeah. Uh, but that play is really in your face in a way that usually is not described as in your face, if you see what I mean. Mm, it's yeah. not described as, ooh, this is this edgy provocative play. Well, it does take these characters very seriously and what their concerns and what their faith is. And faith is like really a hot potato in American theater, oh, I think. Much is. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing edgy about telling people what they want to hear. Right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I kind of feel like with with that play, the way that I've come to think about these plays is that you kind of have to, as an audience member with my plays, I think you kind of have to do a little work. You you have to meet the play halfway because I'm not going to, I, I, I'm kind of just opening a door and inviting you to walk through and I'm not grabbing you by the lapels and dragging you through with you know, um, plot mechanics or, or uh, you know, snappy dialogue or what, you know, all the things right. that they, they, that a playwright would use to sort of like engender that kind of attention from an audience. And so, uh, especially I think, you know, with, with greater Clements, you know, in a bigger space than I've been in ever before in New York and a lot of people in there don't know me and don't know my writing, they show up and they're saying, they're told, okay, it's a three act play. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> and the play starts and, and it's kind of earnest and, straightforward and it's about these people in Idaho. And I think that either consciously or subconsciously when they realize that like, oh, this is a playwright from Idaho writing about where he came from in this kind of earnest way, either consciously or subconsciously their brows furrow. And that's not everybody, but mm -hmm. some people just kind of like they, they, they bristle. Mm. Uh, and it's hard to come back from that because there's not, like I said, there's not a lot of the fireworks or yuck yucks to like win them back you know it's a very straightforward play and i think i think from my taste the best new play of 2019 um that said sam i have something to bring up with you you said you are extremely uh, into the sound design yes uh i'm gonna ask you a question about the set design which i per i thought it was an interesting idea but I will also say, and you know what I'm going to say, that be, that to accommodate the mechanics of the, the hydraulics of the set or whatever right. that is, there are very prominent poles in the Mitzi Newhouse Theater between the audience, some members of the audience, and the stage. <laughs> what? <laughs> it was, it's an unusual issue, um, and it's not... Um, overwhelming when you yeah. get used to it. You look around them. It's not they're not thick. They're they're narrow. But occasionally you lose Judith Ivy's face when you want to see Judith Ivy's face. What when <laughs> was that a design choice that you and the set designer was it uh, Dane Dane Laffrey yeah um, made? Um, how did that? How did, <laughs> what what can you tell me about that decision? Uh, <laughs> I, this is what I will say about, about our set. I love our set. I think it is beautiful. The things that I love about our set is that it feels like it could be the set for Antigone, mm. uh, especially when the lift is up mm -hmm. and you've got that big kind of plane. Mm. Um, and and I think it's a super bold gesture. It's the highest deck that has ever been. The stage is higher than it's, than it's ever been in 35 years wow. in that theater. Uh, it's something like five feet off the floor. So we actually killed oh, wow. a few rows. Um and you're right. I mean, there are those poles. I, I, you know, I can. <laughs> did you? No, I'm just curious. Did you guys go? Well, what are we gonna? Do you think people will mind the poles or no? And you just sort of like get into a fog of creativity, and it's like this is this realizes my vision. So I, mean, I think yeah, we built okay. the set, and the set was there. You know what I mean? And 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 I continue to okay. love the set. I'm not. I, I'm less. Um, 
I'm not a very, this sounds like I'm abdicating responsibility. I'm not, <laughs> but, but, uh, because I love Dane and I love that set. And, and I think Dane's a genius. It's a beautiful but, set. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but no, I, 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 I am not a very spatially oriented person and you leave that uh, to them. Yeah. And, and to be honest on, it wasn't until final dress that somebody brought that up and I was like, Oh, <laughs> and then now it's become this Whoops. kind of like I, yeah, thing about the play. I mean, I, but, I didn't yeah, mind anyway. it, and I, I mean, yeah, clearly it was often. Well, there were there but, were certain angles that right. you would arguably prefer to others, right? And it, it yeah. was just I thought it was kind of a. I was happy actually in a way that I was seated with the pole in front of me, and because that was real, you know, right. I didn't yeah. feel like it was. I was I couldn't explain what that was like to someone who was. In right. that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And anyway. I will say too, when I saw the model, I was like, oh, it feels almost like a cage, which I really like. Uh, that uh, yes. I get, totally. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. And, and as I said, I still adored the play. Yeah. So is there anything you can tell us about what you're working on next? I mean, I know a lot of people are kind of cagey about not, but in general. And actually, well, actually, before we get to that, um, uh, more and more playwrights are writing for other avenues mm -hmm. for like, TV or film, is that something that interests you or are you really specifically into the stage? I I mean, if I could write only for the stage and have health insurance and enough money <laughs> to send my daughter to school, then I would write only in for New the York. stage. Yeah, in New right. York. Um, but you know, there there are certain economic realities. And and I will say that like the thing that screenwriting, I haven't done a ton of it, but what I've done I've enjoyed and uh, it's been lucrative and it's gotten my family health insurance and it's really good health insurance. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's been good. I think it's kind of pushed me in certain ways too to just sort of like write things that I didn't know I had I knew how to write. Uh, I remember yeah, like for, what, can you give us some examples? Oh, like I wrote what? this. I don't know how much I'm legally allowed to talk, but I mean, I wrote this pilot for a famous actor's production company, and I mean, I, God knows what will ever happen with it. But it's, you know, it's like this hour-long pilot that's set in like South Africa in 1902, and it has battle scenes. I mean, it's stuff that like I would never Whoa. think I would have. So that was an assignment. Was, yeah, it was it like more assignment. like yeah. okay, this is the setting. Go. Well, it was like an article, oh, and I see. and it was brought to me. And I read it and I was like, this is so far away from anything else I've ever done. So maybe let's that would be good for me. And mm -hmm. it was. And it was really hard. I learned a lot. And I think it probably made me a better playwright because it just forced me to stretch different muscles. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I continue to uh, really be interested in how screenwriting can enliven my career as a playwright. But I, I first and I don't know if I'm ever really going to think of myself as a screenwriter. I, I you know, I, I'm from the, my first love is the theater. I, I I would write plays all day long if that's all I had to do. Nevertheless, though, you just said to us that you learned something from it, and yeah, I find right. that very I find that very interesting. I think maybe what I learned is like, oh, it gave me like like maybe I wouldn't have given myself permission to write a three act play if I hadn't have done some screenwriting and be like, oh, I just wrote that pilot set in 1902 in South Africa, and it's not bad. You know, like, like maybe I can do something else, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, it's been good in that way. It's been very valuable in that way. Do you, do you go to the theater a lot as just... I, as, I try to. I mean, try. honestly, like, um, you know, I became a parent in, mm. in October of 2017. Uh, my husband and I adopted a beautiful little baby, and um, that's definitely cut into my mm -hmm. theater time. 
I, I mean, I have to admit, I've seen like nothing this fall between being a dad and rehearsing a three hour play. Um, but I'm really hoping that this winter I'm going to have to, you know, right. I can pick the, Catch pick up. it back, pick it back up. Yeah. Yeah. There's some places I just so desperately want to see. And we we did we just did want to ask you what are you know if you do are you are, are you working on something currently? Yeah, I uh, actually right before I think it was the day before we went into rehearsal for Greater Clements, I had the first read of a new play, um, and uh, it's it's kind of both structurally and spiritually, if I can say that word, kind of a response to Greater Clements. Mm -hmm. um, it's a two character play and. Uh, it's the, the lens is very, 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 very tight. Oh, cool. Um, and it's, and it kind of like, after I've processed the kind of like angst and grief of greater Clements, that a play that I wrote, you know, while we were adopting a child, which is like no small mm. amount of anxiety there too. Wow. But now that I've kind of settled into parenthood and I have this little, this beautiful little baby who's likely going to live to see the year 2100, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's changed my outlook a little bit. And, uh, you take me back. I, I adopted a little girl. At, uh, it, now it's 26 years ago. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, but anyway, listen, Sam, it is a pleasure to meet you. Thank and you get so to much. to talk to you. And congratulations very, very much on so. this, this wonderful play at Lincoln, at Lincoln Center Theater in the Mitchell And I'm House. really happy that you're prolific. <laughs> that really makes me very happy because it's like every year, every other year, almost. Like yeah, been, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's been kind of great to see that you're able to get your stuff produced, which is not. I mean, we all know it can be very, very difficult, uh, and I, I, it gives me hope. <laughs> so thanks again. Thanks, thanks for you. joining us. Thanks. Okay, well, that was really that was thrilling talking to Sam Hunter. I really, I really enjoyed that tremendous. I I, what a great guy. I, I want to have coffee with him every day. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll come back. <laughs> We're going to get him Coffee back. with Sam, we can call the segment. Okay, <laughs> and so now it's time for, uh, for coffee with uh, Terry, Elizabeth, and Peter as we turn to our roundtable segment to talk about the plays, uh, productions we've seen lately that we want to dissect a little bit more deeply. So why don't we start? Uh, Terry, do you want to uh, go first? Yes. Um, as many of our listeners are probably aware, uh, uh, my wife, Mrs. T, is back in the hospital. Ugh. So I've gotten a bit behind on play going, but I'm starting to catch up. And I've just seen and reviewed uh, Stephen Adley Gerges's new play, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven, which is now running off Broadway at the Atlantic Theater Company. And I was tremendously impressed with it, as I have been with the last two plays of his. The Motherfucker with a Hat, and Between Riverside and Crazy. Uh, he was not a playwright who arrested me at the beginning. I thought he was really quite sophomoric. And then suddenly, with uh, with Motherfucker, he uh, snapped into focus, discovered the value of, of tight structure and the well-wrought play. And um, he's been on a winning streak. And I think he continues to be on a winning streak, but in a different way. Uh, halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven is set in an upper Manhattan a halfway house for uh, battered and mistreated women. Uh, it has a large cast, 18. Uh, it's a long play, nearly three hours. And unlike its predecessors, it's a bit, it's basically plotless. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's like a Chekhov play, uh, sort of like half uh, heartbreak halfway house. Um, <laughs> uh, and yet, uh, because of this new discipline that he's acquired in his playwriting in the last decade, uh, it moves with tremendous speed, tremendous authority. Uh, each of the characters is 
sharply realized and very, very beautifully and individually played. Uh, it's a wonderful ensemble cast. And um, John Ortiz, who is a longtime collaborator of his, he's the current artistic director of Labyrinth Theater Company, which is co-producing the show with The Atlantic, has really uh, nailed this play together. Uh, so uh, I, I rejoice to report uh, that uh, Mr. Gurgis is still uh, taking care of business. And uh, I really love this play. Uh, I, I, if it had opened a week earlier, it would have made my Wall Street Journal Best of the Year hmm. list. And um, uh, I just think it's terrific stuff. I'm, I'm Three times I'm a fan. Okay, I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I liked it a lot. I thought it's very entertaining. I was a little... Uh, I didn't think it was as good as um, uh, the last two plays, Riverside, between Riverside and Crazy, which he won the Pulitzer for, and uh, uh, the um, motherfucker with the hat. I thought those were uh, tauter, and I thought that he just sort of lost some of the threads as we went along. It felt a little bit uh, protracted, and some of the characters didn't work as well for me as others. Um, I overall, I, I thought it was a tremendously entertaining play. There's no doubt about it. I think it could have uh, used a little um, editing. I I I loved it as well. I'm I'm really with with Terry. Uh, I, I guess I liked it more. I'm really on 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 with Terry there. I loved it, and it's funny that it's it's so long because you can feel the pleasure he had in writing for those characters. So he just kept going and writing them great scenes. And yes, there's not. There's no plot per se. It's just a series of wonderful scenes that are stitched together. And it's it's more like a, let's say, like a week in the life of. I guess it takes yeah. place in a short amount of time. And this is a snapshot of this place and these people at a particular moment. Uh, I can't think of anybody right now who writes best dialogue than he Funny. does. His dialogue is absolutely unbelievable. And also he has amazing titles. <laughs> I mean, how great yeah, is that title? Um, this is drawing to a high hand, but his dialogue more and more reminds me of August Wilson. It doesn't sound like Wilson, but he has that particular skill for making poetry out of out of the urban Argo. And uh, I, I just it's it's a pleasure to sit and listen. And, oh, it's, yeah, it's a it's a long play. Maybe it's too long, but I wouldn't want to be the guy who had to cut it. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth. Oh my God. Okay, so. <laughs> I, I went to see the uh, uh, Harry Connick Jr. is doing a show on Broadway called The Celebration of Cole Porter. And I saw that. And it is one of the most bizarre shows. Really? That I've seen. I, oh. I realize people are talking a lot about cats right now. But in its own way, this show is almost as weird as cats. This is, I know, right? Oh, my God. But, okay, so it starts with this very protracted, long video where Harry mm. Connick climbs into it's very cgi heavy obviously so he climbs he goes to some field in peru indiana where cole porter was from there's a huge statue of porter there and he kind of goes up this staircase and he gets into his ear right you you with me there uh-huh. and then so he's in inside cole porter's head and then he ends up in some kind of library and he opens these boxes. And all I could think was like, don't open the ark. Just don't. No, 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 no. Bad things are going to come out. <laughs> of course he does. And the show <laughs> is this completely odd review. He is so stilted and wooden. 
which is amazing that anybody could have thought he could act in musicals such as Pajama Game and On a Clear Day. But he can't act. Exactly. Well, now it's probably because he can't even act himself. Um, and the singing is fine, but what's great about the show is the orchestrations, mm. which he wrote. Uh, there's a really big orchestra on stage. I think it's like 25 pieces or something. And it's really firing on all cylinders. It's such a good band. Um, and the orchestration is a delight. The songs are all the best known songs mm. you can think of. Mm -hmm. It's a super obvious selection there. Right. Uh, but there's a fantastic moment where he takes night and day and he kind of dissects the way he put the orchestrations together. Mm. It's very, like, it's very uh, Leonard Bernstein, Young People's Concert. It's very pedagogical. I should not yeah. attempt words that I cannot pronounce. You pronounced it beautifully. Yeah, I don't I think. I love that. You, you made it sound better than the word actually comes off of, you know, right. the native speaker's lips. It's an education. <laughs> but that scene, which takes about like 10 minutes, it's kind of long. But it's so thrilling. I wish I could see it every day. Uh, but the rest of the show is just completely bizarre. And he's so stiff. I cannot understand how this guy can be so stiff after decades on the road and decades playing concerts. Mm. It's a really odd show. <laughs> it's Would a you really say, odd show. Well, it, are you saying, though, there's enough good music in it and the orchestrations are good enough to, to negate the frame? If you're really, if you're a nerd, into Cole Porter orchestrations. You'll love it. You'll love it. But like, how big is that as, you know? And of course, I mean, although if you're a Harry Connick nerd, at one point, he very coyly takes off his shirt. Oh, He's no. wearing an undershirt. But he, he keeps his back to us. Oh, no. And these women behind me completely lost their... They were starting screaming, and but, you know, he did not turn around, so we didn't get... Isn't he like the, 60? The guy's, no, I don't know his... <laughs> Like maybe in his early 50s, I'm gonna I think. get a letter. But he's in very, very good shape, very yeah. an inviable shape. I would he, say. He's always been in good shape. I yeah, mean. but he's not. Actually, you know, I interviewed him maybe like 20 years ago or something. And yeah. I remember this one of the very few times that happened to me when I walked into the room that he was in and I was really overwhelmed by his charisma. Mm. It was striking. That was way before he did the pajama. I mean, I can't remember when it was, right. but it was a long time ago. Right. And it was overwhelming. I, mm. I really felt like I can. This is like charisma you can touch. I refrained myself from touching the charisma. <laughs> I did not touch the charisma. That's very, Don't yeah, touch very the charisma. Also, also smart of you. Credit where credit is due. Yeah. Um, you can count on the fingers of one hand the number of singers who do their own orchestrations. Mel yes. Torme did it too. Mm -hmm. uh, that is quite an achievement. Yes. It is not to be vouchsafed. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, I kind of wish he almost had done them for someone else, maybe. And no, it's a, maybe it's a little mean, but yeah, okay. I was not sold on that. Right. God, that band. That band is fantastic. Well, really. I mean, just go for the band. Right. Go for the band. Okay. Um, that sounds sort of intriguing. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure what the hell. But anyway, uh, I am going to talk uh, briefly about a show I saw in Washington by... Our friend, uh, friend, our former guest on Three on the Isle, Lauren Gunderson, the prolific Lauren Gunderson, uh, who is making a world premiere uh, a presentation at the uh, Shakespeare Theatre Company of her version of Peter Pan. It's called Peter Pan and Wendy, and it, it matches up with a play that she has had running in New York briefly 
uh, downtown called The Half-Life of Marie Curie, about Marie Curie, the connective tissue is that this is a very um, feminist uh, version of the Peter Pan story in which Wendy is now, it's set in its t in the time that J.M. Barry wrote it, but Wendy is now a, a budding astronomer. She's a scientist in in her, it was, she's a stargazer, you know, it's, mm -hmm. there you go. And um, the characters are the wokest Peter Pan characters you will ever meet. In, in <laughs> Neverland, Tiger Lily is now the representative of the indigenous peoples of Netherland reclaiming their lands or wants them back from Captain Hook. <laughs> who's kind of an evil developer, still a pirate, but he's apparently in control of of all of the... the, the that's the, uh, a great... Yeah. That's and a weird premise. He's a land pirate. And, and Tinkerbell is now uh, sort of in this trio, this girl power trio, is now this kind of raucous <laughs> Megan Mullally character who oh uh, starts off as a nemesis of Wendy and then obvious and ends up allied with her as things get... Peter Pan gets sort of lost in the shuffle in this version. <laughs> Uh, he's there, but you know, he's like one dimensional. Everybody else has got like, and he flies and they all fly and all that stuff. And it's the great sets and everything. But I, I really liked the idea of a Peter Pan for little girls. The uh, really for little girls, you know, Peter Pan has always been played by a girl or very often a woman, forgive me, by a woman. And that has always felt like a cheat on the story, which is really a, a, about a little boy, the boy who never grows up. Here, it's really about the the girls and their aspirations in various ways uh, in the story. And and that's lovely for a, a, a father and mother to take their daughter this time of mm -hmm. year to something that tells them it's about them, too. That Peter Pan is not just about, you know, a boy learning lessons. It's about a girl exploring her own nature. So I was very happy there. Uh, and I thought it was woke in the right ways, not in a not in the way that just felt uh, like a, a cliche. You mean or, not, not in a jagged little pill way? Not in a jagged little pill way. Thank you for saying that. Well, it sounds like it's going to run everywhere in that case. I think it's a real, uh, it's going to be a real success story. I think a, 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 this will confirm the Lauren Gunderson, like, United States domination <laughs> yeah. Like, well, people we, who listen to our show know she is the right. most produced playwright in America uh, at regional theaters across the country. And this will absolutely uh, cement the ranking. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay, well, from Halfway Houses to Neverland, uh, we've covered the waterfront and then some. Uh, let's uh, put a period on uh, oh Three God. on the Isle for 2019. I'm Peter Marks. I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Terry Teachout. Our producer is the ultra-impeccable Erica Wong. Very nice. You can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the Isle, spell it out, and write to us with questions, which we love and we want more of, at 3 on the Isle. again, spell it out, at gmail.com. And please let us know if there's any topics you'd like to uh, hear us discuss here uh, on our future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or a rating on iTunes or Google Play or whatever, wherever you find this gem of a podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be with you again in the year 2020. Oh, God. On the Isle. <laughs> <laughs>